thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arnie. Hello. Now, coming up this week, it's life, Jim, but not as we know it, because scientists have discovered bacteria millions of years old living underground, and they're thriving on nothing more than just radiation. Also, how boozy fruit flies are teaching scientists about how alcohol which is certain genes on and off. That's coming up shortly. And we're listening to cancer. Scientists have discovered how to detect cancer cells which are lurking in a blood sample just by using sound to detect them. Kat. And this week on the show, we are joined by some very special guests to explore the science of sound, including how and why researchers have done this. Absolutely charming. Anyway, they've uh, built the world's biggest whoopee cushion and Salford University's Trevor Cox will be joining us to explain just why. We're going to be hearing how bats use ultrasound to find their way around and Ian Russell from Sussex University will be introducing us to the rather fantastically named greater moustached bat that can fly at 40 miles an hour through a forest without hitting a single thing and can still catch tiny insects just millimetres in length. And we're joined in the studio here by Bob Carlion, who's here to explain the workings of the next generation of hearing aids called cochlear implants to explain what happens when we all go deaf later. But it's not just about hearing on tonight's programme because uh, in the inner ear there's also a structure that helps us to balance and for those of you who are in an experimental mood Derek and Dave are going to get you all in a spin. We've got an office chair here and we're going to be making some people feel a bit strained. So find out what that's all about shortly. And if you're in the mood to win something, then I've got the most awesome lemon-powered clock to give away and some signed copies of my book, which is called Naked Science. We have to do to win is to answer tonight's simple question. What animals are ovines? The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, researchers in the US have been studying tipsy fruit flies to try and understand what happens to our genes when we go out on the beers ourselves. Because humans and fruit flies actually respond to alcohol in very similar ways. So researchers at North Carolina State University have decided to study the way that fruit fly genes get switched on or off when the flies are exposed to booze. And they found that nearly 600 genes get turned on or off when the flies are given alcohol. And many of these are genes that are also found in humans. So um, they also found another set of genes that are affected when the flies become tolerant to alcohol, so if they get loads of booze over a long time. So this might explain why some humans are more or less susceptible to a night on the beers and whether some people may be genetically predisposed to alcoholism too. Because some people do have a very cheap Friday night, don't they? Exactly. Some people are a very cheap date. <laughs> and also, Speak, there's... Don't judge everyone by your own standards. <laughs> I know, Chris. But, for example, um, some Asian uh, groups of people, they have a, gen- a genetic difference in them that means they can't metabolise alcohol very well, so they get very drunk very fast. They go very, very red. I think the, the gene in, in question is alcohol dehydrogenase. 
Yeah, indeed. So if you have a different version of that, you find it very hard to metabolise booze. So were there any clues as to why, for instance, and a question which is going to be pertinent for a lot of people, why some people get hooked on booze? Do the flies give us any clues to that? Well, some flies became, um, they had genetic changes that meant they became more or less tolerant to the effects of alcohol. So that might suggest that people who have a higher tolerance and, and maybe get increased pleasure from drinking alcohol might be more susceptible to alcoholism. Now, this is amazing because we've always believed that for something to thrive or live on Earth, then it has to derive its energy from the sun because the sun's a giant nuclear reactor. It sits in the sky and it feeds that energy, losing 8 million tonnes of mass every second towards the Earth. And, of course, as that energy hits the Earth, the sun's rays come down through the atmosphere and plants have this magic molecule called chlorophyll, the stuff that makes them green, and this enables them to capture the sun's energy and turn it from light energy into chemical energy that we can then use because things eat the plants, things eat those things that eat the plants, and eventually we eat the things that eat the things that eat the plants, and that's how the energy ends up in us. Everyone thought that was the case, but now there's been an amazing discovery from a deep-down gold mine near Johannesburg in South Africa, and a group of scientists um, from international research centres heard about a new fracture which had opened up when, when people were drilling in this mine, and out of this fracture started to emerge water, and they went down and sampled this water... And they took some samples away and analysed it and used various chemical methods to work out how old the water is. And it shows by their methods that the water has been locked away underground for between 3 million and 25 million years. So a very, very long time. And it's thriving with bacteria. And when they analyse the DNA of those bacteria, they're very similar, some of them, to the kinds of bacteria that thrive around undersea hydrothermal vents where the hot water comes up from the ocean floor and it's rich in minerals and the bacteria survive. Now, what's really clever is that the bugs that are in this piece of water, because the water's been isolated for 25 million years, they can't be getting any energy from the sun. There can be nothing supplying them apart from the environment in which they find themselves. So how can they possibly be surviving and what on? I mean, is it, is it like the geothermal bugs? Are they surviving on sulphur? No, it's, it is geothermal energy, but of a very different type than you might think because the rocks there are rich in uranium and it's radioactive uranium and what's happening is that the uranium is breaking down, it's radioactively decaying and the radiation coming out of the uranium is breaking apart water molecules and the split apart water molecules are then reacting with minerals in the rocks and leaching various compounds of sulphur and also other kinds of hydrogen. They're actually producing hydrogen gas and these bacteria are specialised to eat those particular chemicals. And because these bacteria can thrive on them, the bacteria then feed other bacteria, and you get a whole community, but just powered by radiation. That's really interesting, because radiation is really good at damaging DNA. I mean, how do these bacteria survive the, the DNA-damaging effects of radiation? The radiation isn't intense. So all you need is a tiny amount of radiation to produce quite a lot of substances that these bacteria can live on. And we're not talking about huge, thriving colonies of bacteria that outnumber the rest of the population of the planet. We're talking about small numbers, relatively speaking, of bacteria. And so there's not enough radiation to fuel a huge community and nor enough radiation to damage them. But a good question, and the answer is that they probably have evolved quite quickly because of damage to their DNA. Clever little bugs. Anyway, uh, I've got a story about memory here somewhere. Don't tell oh. me you've forgotten it. Oh, no, here it is, here it is, that's all right. Anyway, if you're like me and you have an absolutely terrible memory, then at least you have an excuse, because we can now blame it on our genes. Uh, scientists in the US have identified a gene responsible for human memory after studying more than 1,000 people in Switzerland and Arizona. 
and they scanned 500,000 genetic markers in all these people and found variations in a gene called Kibra and that these variations were associated with whether people had a good or a bad memory. Now, um, people who have a certain version of Kibra, they have to tax their brains harder to recall the same amount of information than people who have a different kind of version of the gene. So you, their brains have to just work harder to keep that information in there. And they also found that this, this Kibra gene is active in part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is the part of your brain that's responsible for memory and long-term learning. So the researchers next, what they want to do is try and discover drugs that can help to improve memory in people whose kibra is a bit duff. And they may help memory uh, people with memory loss disorders such as Alzheimer's or maybe even people like me who can't remember where they put their keys all the time. There's um, another genetic study that was done a little while ago and scientists were looking at a gene called BDNF, brain cell, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and they found that people who had a certain form of this gene were better at telling stories, probably because they had better memory. I really? don't know, but they were better storytellers. Than, they're better uh, at jokes as well, because jokes are just stories. Anyway, we are going to get on to our teaser as well. If you know what are ovines, then you need to be giving us a call now on 08459 25 2000 or texting us on 07786 20 1960. And no, studio guests aren't allowed to join in. <laughs> no, you can't join in. So get, get calling in now on our teaser. Also, if you have any questions about the science of sound, the science of hearing, um, how do you design a building so that you can hear concerts in a concert hall, but a railway station so that you can actually hear the announcements, we want your calls now, 08459. 25, now, an interesting thing which came out this week was scientists have discovered how you can literally listen out, and we're talking about the science of hearing this week, how you can listen out for cancer cells. There's a group of researchers at the University of Missouri, Columbia in America, led by a guy called John Vieta, and what they've done is to take a blood sample, and when cancer becomes a problem, it's when it's learned how to spread from where the cancer starts, the primary tumour, how to spread into a different part of the body, and it obviously does that via the bloodstream. So you could learn a lot about how the cancer's spreading and what stage of the disease you're at if you could detect when it first starts to do that. What these scientists have done is, using a blood sample, you first spin it down to get rid of all of the red blood cells and the plasma, and that leaves just the white blood cells behind, and any stray cancer cells. Now, because cancer from melanoma, which is a skin cancer, has cells containing the pigment melanin, and pigment, the pigment melanin is brown, it was, is what gives us a suntan, what they can do is to zap the tube with a laser. It's a blue laser, which fires very short pulses, just five billionths of a second long. And these, this laser light is only picked up by the melanoma cells, if they're there, for the simple reason that they absorb the laser light because they're pigmented and the other cells don't. Now, this heats the cells up very, very quickly, so they very rapidly expand and then contract again, and when they do that, what it does is create ultrasound waves that a very sensitive microphone can then be used to detect, and so you can pick up this chemical and sound signature of the presence of melanoma cells, and the researchers say they can pick up just 10 cells which are cancerous out of a sample of millions from a blood sample. That's incredibly impressive because uh, at the moment early detection is really crucial for melanoma because uh, at the moment there aren't really any good treatments. So let's see if it works. It's Chris and Kat on The Naked Scientists and as Kat has said, we're talking this week about the science of sound. And if you have any questions, you can email us, chris at nakedscientist.com. Call in as Andy has done. We'll be joining him shortly, 08459 25 or text in on 07786 20 We're talking this evening to Bob Kyle-Iron very shortly about how cochlear implants work. Those are the next generation of hearing aids. We'll be finding out how the greater moustached bat can navigate so fast through a forest full of trees without hitting any, hopefully. And we'll also be finding out about 
about the world's largest whoopee cushion from Trevor Cox at the University of Salford. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris and Kat, and we're taking your questions this evening. Andy joins us. Hi, Andy. Hello, mate. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. What would you like to ask? Uh, not so much about sound. It's the Earth's core. I've phoned in with a question for the last few weeks and got no answer to it. The Earth's core is basically molten, agreed? It's, yes, it is. Yeah, and the Earth's somewhere in a region of four billion years or so old. Yeah, about four and a half billion years. But remember, when you say it's molten, right at the Earth's core it's not molten because the pressure is so intense that actually the, the iron down there is crushed into a solid. Yeah, but the heat from the Earth's core is still there. There's a lot of heat and down there. By volcanoes, earthquakes, etc., etc., with lava pouring out. Well, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, remember that you get a lot of heat happening when one tectonic plate goes underneath another. It gets subducted, and that creates enormous amounts of friction and melting. And so you can get some, some magma formed at that, ha- at that site as well. But yes, a lot, of, a lot of molten material is underneath the Earth's surface. Yeah. How come it hasn't cooled down over the past four and a half billion years? And why hasn't man tried to tap into all that energy? Well, we have. Um, Kat, you know something about Iceland and bananas. I know that for a fact. I, I remember hearing somewhere that Iceland is one of the biggest producers of bananas in the world. And the reason is that they use this geothermal energy. Um, Iceland has a lot of hot magma near the surface, and so they use that heat to do all sorts of things. And there's other places around the world where they use this heat of, of hot earth underneath them to, to heat water and, and to power things. So the, we, we do use it. But the ultimate question of where does that heat come from, the answer is, Andy, that the heat has, to a certain extent, always been there. The fact is that the Earth is a, is a huge body and as a result has an enormous amount of energy trapped under its surface, but it has cooled down. When the Earth first formed it was essentially a layer of molten material. It was a, a blob of molten material in space. Since that time it has cooled a lot, but because we're quite a big planet, we haven't lost all our heat yet. And then there's a second contribution. In the early days of the Earth when it first formed and it was very molten all the heavy, dense elements sunk deeper into the Earth's crust than the lighter ones. And the heavy dense things were of course things that might be radioactive. And for a while some people have suggested that the Earth might have underneath its surface a big geo-reactor. This is a giant natural nuclear reactor and when you get critical masses of the right kind of metals in the right place at the right time, they can begin their own chain reaction and that produces heat, which we think has also helped to warm the Earth up. Right. There you go. You can find something similar in Africa, in Gabon, I think it is. There is an ev- there's evidence of an old georeactor quite close to the surface. That one was a little bit different. What happened there was that a certain kind of bacterium helped to concentrate large amounts of a certain kind of radioactive material, uranium, and because of the concentration brought about by the bacteria, eventually they reached critical mass and a chain reaction started, and, and you got this react- reactor quite close to the surface. But that- that's basically where the heat comes from. So- a lot of it was already there from when the Earth formed. A lot of it was generated when another planet slammed into the Earth, but that's another story. And also we may have a geo-reactor, a natural radioactive centre in the Earth which is producing heat. Brilliant one, thanks. All right. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Yeah, go on in. Because we have a fantastic lemon-powered clock to give away and some copies of my book Naked Science for you. Right. If you win. Are you ready? Yes, please. The average molecule in the air around you is travelling at over 1,000 miles per hour. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? I'd say science fiction. 
It's actually true. The average oxygen molecule zips past you at 416 metres per second. That's 1,000 miles an hour. And uh, the reason that they don't actually travel very far and you don't feel them is because they're almost immediately smashing into something else, like the other 3.5 billion other atoms that are around them. Tea bags were invented in the 1850s, Andy. Fact or fiction? Bad luck. No, tea bags date from 1908, and uh, according to legend, were the brainchild of Thomas Sullivan from New York. But teapots, on the other hand, are much older and were invented in China during the Ming Dynasty. Thank you very much to Andy, who joined us on this week's Naked Scientist. If you'd like to ask us any questions, you can call in now on 08459 25 2000 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Questions about the science of sound, if you could, please, but we'll also take any general science questions too. And uh, up for grabs, if you want to have a go at our teaser this week, is a lemon-powered clock and the question, what kind of animals are ovines? And they're not oval ones, I'll tell you that. Anyway, it's time for our science update now. We go stateside, where Bob and Chelsea reveal why males obsessed with sex could be digging themselves an early grave. But that's only if you're a prairie dog. And how, <laughs> and, uh, and how males of our own species have been exposed as closet shopaholics. This week on Science Update, we have new research that shows that a single-minded preoccupation with sex can be fatal especially if you're a male prairie dog. But first, for all the male humans out there, Chelsea's here to tell us that men may be more vulnerable than scientists have thought to a condition often ascribed to women. Despite popular stereotypes, men are about as likely as women to be compulsive shoppers. This according to a new study by psychiatrist Lauren Coran and his colleagues at the Stanford University School of Medicine. The researchers screened over 2,500 randomly selected adults for compulsive shopping patterns, like irresistible urges to buy things they never use. One man had 50 cameras that he never took a picture with, or another man had 2,000 wrenches. Koran says that until now, all the information on gender came from treatment studies, which actively recruited volunteers who thought they had a shopping problem. 80 to 90 percent of these volunteers were women. And so it was thought that men weren't particularly affected by this problem. But now it looks like men are about equally affected and just don't come for help, which is what we see also in men with major depression. Technically, compulsive shopping currently falls under the heading of miscellaneous impulse control disorders. But between the explosive growth of Internet shopping and the ever-broadening selection of consumer goods, Koran says the problem may soon warrant its own clinical definition. And while unchecked compulsive shopping can wreck credit ratings, family finances, and even marriages, Koran says treatment is effective. He hopes the findings will encourage more people, especially men, to seek help. Thanks, Chelsea. These Utah prairie dogs are barking out a warning that they've spotted a hungry fox. You'd think that the fox's best hope for dinner now is a prairie dog who's too old or sick to get away. But University of Maryland behavioral ecologist John Hoagland found that during prairie dog mating season, the easy targets are healthy males. And the bottom line is because of this obsession with, with sex these males were, were highly vulnerable to predation. So during that 17 days of the mating season, we saw 10 males get taken by either a red fox or a, a northern goshawk. That's out of just 26 prairie dogs that were caught all year. He says saving endangered prairie dogs may require keeping predators away when the males are preoccupied. Thanks, Bob, and good luck to males out there of all species. 
Next week, we'll learn how early European explorers in the Americas purchased gold with shoelace tags. Until next time, I'm Chelsea Wald, and I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, naked scientists. Thanks, guys, and they'll be back next week. But as always, you can hear more from Bob and Chelsea by going to their website, which is www.scienceupdate.com. So, how are we doing on the teaser, Chris? We're doing very well. Let me just remind everybody what we want to know this evening. We're asking you what sorts of animals are ovines. And if you think you know the answer, you could win yourself a fantastic lemon-powered clock, which has kindly been donated by Noisemakers. They're a group of scientists who like to make a noise about science. There's more information on their website at noisemakers.org.uk. We've heard from uh, Andy... We've heard from John, Richard, Betty, Joan and Harry, and they've all got the answer right so far. Uh, a couple of disappointments. Um, Maggie in Gorston says it's oxen. Not quite. And uh, Alan in Wickham uh, markets on the right lines, as is Sybil, who is in Sawston. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. Tis the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, that's me, and Dr Kat Arney, and we're here this week discussing the science of sound. I've just had a wonderful email from uh, Becca, who says, I love your show, I started listening on the podcast, and I listen to it on the job and in the car whilst driving through Death Valley every day. I've never been to Death Valley, have you? No, uh, no, I have actually, yes. I've used the hottest toilet in the world in the middle of Death Valley. <laughs> Sounds intriguing. Uh, anyway, let's join uh, now Bob, who's here in the studio, Bob Carlines from the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit. Hello, Bob. Hi there, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Now, we all take our ears for granted, I think. Mm-hmm. How yep. does it actually work? Uh, well, basically, um, sound is vibration in the air, and uh, once the sound has been uh, picked up by uh, the sort of floppy bit on the outside of your head, which you can see, which is called the pinna, it's transmitted to the inner ear, inside of which there's a membrane, which is thin and stiff at one end and wide and wobbly at the other end and the thin, stiff bit vibrates most to high-frequency sounds, and the low, wide, wobbly bit vibrates most to low-frequency sounds. And, and that's at the bit called the cochlea, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's a membrane called the basilar membrane inside the cochlea, mm. and there are just an array of uh, receptor cells along the length of that which uh, pick up the vibrations and send it along neurofibers to the brain. So at, at different points along the cochlea, mm-hmm. you're literally vibrating more than others, and this is creating electrical signals in nerves the brain can understand. That's absolutely right, yeah. So... Well, you know, if I stand in a noisy room, Mm -hmm. I've got sound bombarding me from all angles in both ears, yet you then say something from the other side of the room and I can focus in just on the sound of your voice. So how the hell do I do that? That's right. It's particularly impressive that we can do it because my voice and other people's voices are at least physically quite similar. So the brain uses two or three different tricks. One of them is the fact that you've got two ears, obviously. So, um, for example, my voice might be louder at one ear than the other, and you can use uh, those differences. But even if you're just listening over the radio, you can, um, and there's lots of people arguing on the same program, and it's a mono radio, you can still uh, separate out the sounds. And basically what um, the brain uses is the fact that uh, different frequency components of the same person's voice will tend to start and stop together at the same time. And also... uh, they'll also share a common pitch. So there'll be a harmonics of a particular pitch and the brain can sort of use a pattern recognition method to uh, group those things together. Can your ears literally tune in to certain sounds then? Uh, well, the ears are, in, are pretty good at tuning into individual frequencies, but the problem is that um, my voice contains lots of frequencies. It's got the high frequency sort of, of uh, uh, the fricatives and the low, lower frequency parts produced by vibration around my nasal cavity and uh, my voice. And what the brain's got to do is to somehow group together all of those little bits uh, together and ignore some other 
uh, frequencies which might belong to somebody else. So that's the cunning bit. So once it's been converted into electrical nerve signals, yeah. where do those signals go in order to be interpreted? Um, well, there's lots of, proce- uh, lots of processing in different uh, neural pathways all the way up the auditory system. So in vision, really, the retina um, does a bit of the work and then goes straight up to the visual cortex and there's not much in between. But in the brain, in the auditory system, there's lots of nuclei in the brainstem, one called the cochlear nucleus, another one called the inferior colliculus, uh, and lots of processing all the way up. So by the time it gets up to your auditory cortex um, on the surface of your brain, uh, quite a lot of processing has already taken place. Because um, I was reading a, a wonderful bit of research the other day about this concept of earworms, these songs that go round and round your head and you can't get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going on there? Um, it's an interesting question. There's the, a, a certain um, type of musical hallucination which, which people hear. So basically some people either uh, can force themselves to imagine sounds, but, uh, which we all do, but some people just get songs stuck in their head and they can't get rid of them. And some people have done some brain imaging work to actually identify regions of uh, the cortex, not the primary auditory cortex, but secondary areas. Um, one of these was dubbed the football's coming home area of the brain because uh, the particular person who was in the brain scanner uh, showed activation of this area when that particular song came on. It was the time of Euro, whatever it was, 2000, whenever. And, and are we any closer to getting rid of it because it's damn aggravating? Um, not, not for songs which keep going around in your head. I think you're probably best off just going down to the pub and acting like a fruit fly. Um, there's another type of irritating sound which you get, which is called tinnitus, which is the sort of bells and wh- you know, sort of whistles and hums and things which people get, which is very, very debilitating. Is that the same phenomenon? No, not really, no, because um, uh, I think tinnitus usually arises from... Uh, uh, it's basically the brain interpreting activity which is going on in the periphery of the auditory system. So uh, sometimes synthesis actually occurs as a result of or following some hearing loss or some event to the to Because the you, you know how if, if someone loses a part of their body, such as a limb, if you yeah. chop off someone's leg, mm-hmm. then the person who loses the limb very often says, it's almost as though I can still feel it. And yeah. worse still, they experience mm-hmm. phantom pain from the missing yeah. body part. And one suggestion I did hear from somebody was that when you have long-term exposure to lots of loud sounds, it damages yeah. obviously certain bits of the cochlea that would turn those sounds into electricity the brain understands. That's right. And as a result of damage or losing those bits of the cochlea, yeah. in the same way that phantom limb pain hurts, mm-hmm. the tinnitus is, the, is yeah. the equivalent in the auditory system. Yeah, I mean, I think one way of looking at tinnitus is the brain interpreting the spontaneous activity of the firing of the auditory nerve fibres, which we all get, as some kind of uh, threat signal. And in fact, there's some interesting research showing that um, in a third of the cases when people get tinnitus, it actually follows a stressful event in their life. So in some cases, it's not really anything particularly has happened wrong with their ear. Uh, it may be that their brain has just started interpreting this signal as, as being something of a threat. And then, of course that makes it sound more threatening to them, so they become more stressed. Talking about threat signals, um, can you explain to me why it is that when someone puts their fingers down the blackboard with fingernails and everyone now is cringing around the entire region, why is that so unpleasant? Well, there was an interesting paper on that because I think if you asked um, most scientists what frequency components of that sound you think would be the most irritating, you'd say it was the... um, high-frequency components of the sound. So what these scientists did was uh, filter the sound into different frequency regions and then present these uh, transformed versions of the sound to people to find out which bits were uh, spine-chilling. The paper was called The Psychophysics of a Chilling Sound. I think think I've seen it, actually. And the the surprising finding was it was actually the low-frequency components of the sound which were responsible for that uh, horrible shiver up your spine, which I'm getting now. why do you get it? Why do you have it? 
Because one, one theory I read was that when an animal is subjected to horrendous events such as a lion biting, biting into the back of a, an antelope that's trying to run away, yeah. it makes a very high-pitched sound. This carries very far. Lots of other animals hear it. It alerts you and galvanises you, and you, you know it's the kind of, oh, my God, something bad's going to happen, so you, you run away. It's a danger signal. Is, is that... Um, perhaps what's what's behind this? Well, that might be, but then there are lots of other uh, dangerous, danger, dangerous signs you could hear. So I could play you the sound of a lion in your ear, and it wouldn't really make the you know, um, spine tingle in that way, or your toes curl. No, but the sound um, of the animal in distress would, wouldn't it? So the high pitches emitted by the animal squealing mm-hmm. is similar to the fingers down the blackboard, and that's why. yeah, yeah. But I think I think what we need to know is why it is that some of those sounds, which uh, are distressful make you feel like that and others you just think oh poor animal or oh, I better run out, out the door I mean I think there are some vibration some sort of low frequency modulations in the sound and I think maybe that might be activating some brain structures but I don't think anybody's really looked at it in in any great detail well let's let's look at um, what happens when hearing goes wrong because obviously people do go deaf as mm-hmm. we get older yep. hearing becomes less acute is that because the, the cochlea is losing nerve fibers or cells that would do that conversion process vibrations into electrical yeah. energy yeah it's usually the receptor cells which, which which die off and there are actually two types of cells on the length of, of this basal membrane so one of them acts purely as receptors and the others act as a uh, sort of little mini amplifiers, if you like. They can they kick energy back into the sound and actually make that bit of the basal membrane a bit more picky or a bit select, more selective about which frequencies it likes. And often those things are the first to go. So when when we when we lose them and you want to restore them using this cochlear implant technology, mm-hmm. how does that work? What does it okay. do? Okay. Well, I'd first like to say that of course the uh, standard treatment for people who've got a hearing loss is still a conventional hearing aid. Um, and cochlear implants are really for people where the receptor cells are pretty much complete, either completely died off or uh, they're doing uh, rather poorly. But a uh, cochlear implant looks a bit like an ordinary hearing aid. Uh, it's worn behind the ear. There's a microphone attached to it. And there's a little sort of radio frequency transmitter, which uh, is worn um, on, on the surface of the head just above the ear. And that transmits energy to a little receiver, in, uh, which is implanted inside the person's head, which then sends um, electrical impulses to electrodes uh, inserted inside the inner ear. So basically, um, high-frequency sounds go to electrodes which uh, are located on that bit of the membrane which would normally encode high-frequency sounds in normal hearing, and uh, the low-frequency portions in the sound. How good is it? It's pretty good if you're um, listening in quiet. So particularly if somebody's been implanted quite young and they've been able to, uh, their brain's got, got tuned to it. Um, or even if there's somebody who's already learnt language and they've... Uh, 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 received a cochlear implant. Uh, speaking in quiet, one person face-to-face or even on the telephone, uh, m- many patients do extremely well. Uh, the problems occur, uh, first of all, when there's more than one person talking at a time. And, and the other uh, situation is when they're listening to music, particularly if they're listening to singing. You've given us a sample. Um, mm-hmm. let, let's have a listen to what this... This is a sound sample as it would sound like of a piece of music if someone had a cochlear implant. So let's have a listen to that. That doesn't sound like they would enjoy that concert very much, if not, I'm honest. Not very much, and what's more, it's, um, they can't actually hear what the person is singing either. Shall I actually play the normal now? Yeah. Tomorrow is another day. Bit of Ella Fitzgerald. So if I now play the, the cochlear version again, you can, it's amazing, you can hear almost what you should mm-hmm. be hearing. Yeah. Yeah. But why is that so bad, the rendition? Why, why are they okay. not experiencing the wonderful sound that most of us are? Um, I think the reason is that, as you say, you can hear, hear the uh, 
uh, the words which are being said. And really, when cochlear implants were developed, that's what uh, the main uh, aim was to do, because people needed to speak and uh, understand uh, what people were saying to them. But they weren't really designed with uh, pitch perception in mind. So basically, the way in which pitch is encoded in the cochlear implants is quite different from the way it's encoded in, in normal hearing. Can it be improved? Uh, it can it can possibly be improved, yeah. There's certainly um, sort of small incremental improvements which are being made all the time. And uh, one of the things which we're looking at is whether there's some sort of sea change one can make. In, in other words, whether it's, there's a possibility of a radical change of the way the sound's encoded. Thank you very much, Bob. That's Bob Carline from the uh, MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit talking about how we hear and how uh, cochlear implants work and how they can restore hearing to people who have lost their hearing. If you have to, any questions you'd like to put to him, you can call in now on 08459 25 2000, text in on 07786 201960 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Absolutely fascinating hearing about how our ears help us to detect and process sound. But our ears also have a really other important function, which is helping us to balance and know which way is up. So to have a look at how balance works, we're now off to Hunsbury Park Primary School in Northamptonshire where Derek and Dave are with Sim Alex and a rather innocent-looking office chair. Derek, what on earth are you up to? Hello there. We are at Hunsbury Park Primary School today and uh, we've come down here to do some excellent science experiments with, of course, Dave, who's here as well. So, Dave, what have we got lined up today? We're making strange feelings with an office chair. OK, yeah, we've got an office chair here and we're going to be making some people feel a bit strange. OK, then, now, just before we get on with the experiment, I do have to say that this is not one to be tried at home. And uh, we've actually come out here outdoors, in fact. You can probably hear the traffic in the background here in Huntsbury. But um, we've come out to a nice kind of open space where there's nothing around. It's just a big open space of grass and a spinny office chair right in the middle of it, which we are about to use. So now, then, we've also got two fantastic volunteers from the school here. Uh, so, guys, could you tell me your names and ages, firstly? My name's Simbai and I'm 11. My name's Alex and I'm 11. All right then, now we've got some crazy science here, very few to do, but Sim, do you like science? Um, it's fun, I like blowing up things and making electric circuits. And I think Dave's nodding with approval there, he, he likes that, yeah, exactly, we approve, thank you very much Sim. And Alex, what about you, do you like science? Yeah, I like, um, like electric circuits as well as Sim and like space and all that. Oh, blimey, OK. Well, I think we chose the wrong experiment for these guys. We need some electrics or something. But anyway, this is going to be cool, so that's fine. Now then, Dave, what would you like them to do? Well, I'd like Alex to sit on the chair for me. OK, now we've got a spinny office chair here. So this is just one of those rotating chairs that are everywhere in offices. OK, and uh, Alex, is, that, is it comfortable down there? Yeah. <laughs> OK, good. All right, and now what? Now, I want him to put his head on, his so on its side. That's right. Now lift your legs up. Now I'm going to spin you around for a while. OK, so... Alex's head is down and kind of horizontal. It's resting on his shoulder. And uh, Dave's just spinning him round nice and gently. How are you feeling there, Alex? Bit weird. <laughs> OK, bit weird. Bit All right, weird. then. How, how's this looking to you, yeah. Sim? What can you see? Be our commentator here. Um, Alex is looking like he's got a bit dizzy and I kind of find it bit funny because of his face expressions. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like, the, the way we're looking at it, kind of every, every second or two we see... Alex's face flashed past us, looking rather, rather weary and dizzy. OK, that's good. So what what now, do? Dave? We're going to stop the chair. We're going to get Alex to put his head upright and try standing up. So, Alex, you've got to do this quickly, basically. When we stop the chair, get up now. <laughs> <laughs> and commentator Sim, what happened? Um, Alex just fell off the chair, lying there like he's a bit dead or <laughs> unconscious. 
he's just got up now and I don't think he'll be able to stand up for a couple of minutes. I, I think you might be right. And, and importantly, which way did he fall? Forwards. Yeah, he fell forwards. He kind of went straight down out of the chair. Dave, uh, well, sorry, Alex. Alex, how, how are you doing down there? A little bit sick. <laughs> really? OK. No, no, then. We're, we're, the, we're the kind scientists as well as the naked scientists here, so we obviously didn't make it feel too bad. But are you, are you going to recover? Are you going to be all right? Yeah. OK, that's good stuff. Well, you just remain sat down there a moment. But, but Dave, I mean, what we saw there, as, as Sim was describing to us, was Alex actually kind of going around with his head on his side, and then when he tried to be upright with his head upright and standing up, he kind of fell forwards onto the grass. So what yeah. was going on there? Um, Alex, which way did it feel like you were going... Did you feel dizzy when you f- fell off? I felt like I was just, like, falling forward and I couldn't get up. So a bit like you are feeling dizzy, but you felt like you were rolling forwards rather than normally you feel like you're spinning sideways. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, way, the reason why you feel dizzy is it's all to do with the way you know which way up your head is. The way your brain tells which way up your head is, is it's got a load of tubes in it. They're like lots of little rings of tube, and there's liquid in it. And when you move your head, that liquid stays still, and your head moves around it, and it can measure how much the liquid's going around in the tube, and you can tell the way your head's moving. The problem is, if you start spinning and spinning and spinning, then that liquid starts moving with your head. So when you stop, the liquid moves inside your head and goes round and round, and you feel like you're moving, and and your brain gets confused and you feel dizzy. Okay, so this this uh, fluid kind of has a bit of momentum. So when you stop spinning, you, uh, you you kind of feel a bit dizzy still, and so that explains why when we're just kind of stood upright and turning round, and then we stop, we feel a bit dizzy. But then Alex here had his had his head on its side, and then had that strange effect of feeling like he was falling forward. So what was happening there? That's because there's three different tubes. One of them, which is, goes round your head, which is what you tend to get the liquid swirling around normally. One which is running as if it was going from your nose through your chin back to the back of your head, so long ways on your head. And that detects how far your head's moving forwards or backwards. But if you put it on your head on your side, you swirl the liquid round that tube. So when you put your head upright, it feels like your head's spinning forwards. So you fall forwards. So there you go. It's all about these tubes with liquid in them. And, um, and so, yeah, there's kind of one running vertically, kind of upright through your kind of nose and like in a ring round your head. And, of course, that's the one that we were trying to spin round in Alex, even though we were actually spinning him kind of sideways on this office chair. So, Alex, does that make sense to you? I know you're still quite dizzy, but did any of that crazy science make any sense to you? Yeah. All right, OK. He's still looking a bit weary. I'm worried. I'm sure you'll be all right. Thank you very much. Uh, Sim over here as well. You've watched what Alex was up to. So, I don't know, do you fancy having a go? Um, yes, please. Oh, he's up for it. Are you sure? I mean, you can see that Alex is looking a bit weary there. It looks fine. All right, okay, fair enough. All right, well, I think we're going we're gonna to sign off here with uh, Sim having to go on the chair. So, Dave, if you just ex- instruct Sim quickly. Okay. If you want to get on the chair, uh, put your head on your side. Good, okay, and I'm going to spin you around gently. And uh, there he goes. So if you can imagine in your, in your minds what's going to happen in Sim's head. That's what's about to happen here at Hunsbury Park Primary School. So there you go. How are you feeling there, Sim? I'm fine. OK, we, we'd better head back to the studio anyway. So um, from a spinning Sim and a dizzy Alex and Dave and myself, uh, it's goodbye then. Well, thanks there to Derek, Dave and their rather um, nauseated guinea pig Sim and Alex for that rather puke-inducing kitchen science. Next week, Derek is going to be turning down the heat as he finds out about the super cool science of superconductivity. They'll be using liquid nitrogen, so unfortunately you won't be able to do this one at home, but you might like to dig out your woolly hat in sympathy. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, you often hear the phrase being blind as a bat, but one thing that bats certainly aren't is deaf. And we're joined now by Ian Russell from the University of Sussex, who's working on the rather fabulously named Greater Moustached Bat. Now, these can whiz through forests and catch their dinner at 40 miles an hour using just the power of their hearing. Ian, tell us about this. How does it work? 
Well, uh, bats just shout their heads off and then listen for an echo. And these bats are rather remarkable in that they have two types of sounds that they produce, um, a constant frequency sound and a so-called frequency modulated sound. Uh, and what, what do those kind of sound like? Can you give us an impression? Uh, I can't do an Come on, do a bat impression, yeah? please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, no, I'm, I can do mosquitoes, but I'm no damn good at bats. Um, no, the, 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 the constant frequency one is, is a very high-pitched, um, pure tone at about 60-odd kilohertz. So sort of, oh, yeah, but higher. Exactly, much higher. And then the um, and then the frequency modulated one is well I can do that it goes woo it's a down a downward sweep okay that sounds like a cow Ooh, in, like that a cow in labour okay yeah. uh, but, but anyway uh, and with a with a constant frequency one they can listen to the velocity change as they approach their target so is that uh, like the Doppler effect exactly exactly and what what uh, because their their cochleas are incredibly narrowly tuned they are tuned to about. Um, oh, probably a thousand times more finely tuned than ours are at uh, around about the 60 kilohertz uh, frequency range. So that that's really, really high pitch then? Very, very high pitch. So they're not, uh, not hearing bass or anything like that, just no, high stuff? They don't hear anything that we can hear, for example. Uh, their ears don't work at those sorts of low, low frequencies. Only, only They listen to the sounds they make themselves. And one, one question is, and we've had this in from Steve Humber, who's in, in Dorset, if all these bats are whizzing about and making all these sort of nee and woo noises, yes. how do they not fly into each other? How do they know whose nee is whose? Ah, well, it's, it's, it, um, they're all tuned to different frequencies, but very, very slightly differently. So some will be tuned to, say, 61.45 kilohertz, others will be tuned to 61.44 kilohertz and so forth and um, so they can uh, and because their ears are so narrowly tuned they can pick up these very very narrow uh, echoes that come back so they're very specifically only hearing their own noises coming back yes they, they, they do and, and we've got we've got a call here from Mike in Oldham hello Mike you're on the Naked Scientists you there hi it's Malden uh, okay Malden ah. yes. um, what's your question then basically it's, it's Bats can do this, and we all understand it, or at least uh, scientists understand it. Why aren't aeroplanes equipped with the same sort of frequency things? Wow, what do you reckon, Ian? Well, I mean, um, they are, but 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 not but not at those frequencies. They they use other types of techniques. They do use, I mean, um, uh, radio waves, which is. Um, uh, 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 and uh, they can use those sorts of uh, that sort of information for uh, finding direction, finding and other um, components. Bats can't use those. Ultra, well, they're, well, they're not equipped with radio receivers, but they are equipped with sound receivers, and that's what they use instead. And of course, submarines use sonar, don't they? Which that's, is the same thing. Yes, that was borrowed from bats and dolphins, for example. Brilliant. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz, Mike? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, human hairs are about half a millimeter in diameter. Is that fact or fiction? I would have thought they were less than that. Well done. That's good, Mike. Uh, it's uh, not quite half a millimetre, more like uh, 40 to 120 microns or thousandths of a millimetre across. So they're absolutely tiny. The, the thickest hairs are less than one-tenth of a millimetre in diameter, so very small. One out of one so far. Um, one in ten of the world's active volcanoes are in Japan. Fact or fiction? I think that's fiction. 
Japan is quite literally a hotbed of seismic activity, in fact, because it has over 75 active volcanoes. And one in five of all the major earthquakes measuring more than six on the Richter scale worldwide are happening in Japan. So not a great place to live if you don't like being shaken up from time to time. (laughs) All right. Thanks then, Mike. Cheers. Cheers, Thank you. All right, coming back to you, Ian. So we've already established that bats are whizzing about, making these noises. How come they don't deafen themselves if they have such sensitive hearing? Well, if you look on the website, you'll see some um, bats with uh, beautiful faces. Well, I think they're beautiful. And the, um, part of the reason for that is that their faces are shaped to beam, the, to beam the sounds out from them. But at the same time they're doing that, they're moving their ears backwards. And also in the middle ear, there's the little bones which conduct the sound from the uh, eardrum to the inner ear. And those little bones are clamped by muscles. So the moment they make a sound, these muscles clamp on the, on the, uh, on the transmitting bones and prevent the sound from getting to the ear. Because I'm fascinated by... Uh because I, I speak on the radio quite a lot, and when I listen to my voice on the radio, it sounds completely different from how I'm hearing it in my head. I mean, why is that as humans that we hear our own sounds so differently? Well, I suppose because the bones of the skull and, uh, and uh, tend to filter out particular frequencies, and so when you hear the frequencies that um, get filtered through our own bones... In fact... Um, uh, most of the sounds that we hear from our own voices are through so-called bone conduction, an- another way of driving the ear. You can, if, if you have middle ear deafness, which is another form of deafness, you can use a bone conductor, which is a little vibrator, which rattles on, you know, rattles on your skull. And, uh, uh, well, effectively, that's what we're hearing. They did actually try to make a line of headphones that would work uh, a bit like that, didn't they? They never yes. really caught on about five years ago. And the mm. idea was, they, th- th- I think the, the marketing line was, this would be great for cyclists because they, <laughs> they literally sit on your temples yeah. and leave your ears free. And the idea is if you're riding along, you don't get distracted uh, or miss things that might alert you to a, a danger because you can still hear, but at the same time you're hearing this music coming through the bone. And I did actually try this, and um, to be honest, Britney Spears played through it was <laughs> not something I want to repeat, <laughs> bit, bit, if bit, I'm honest. bit like nails on the blackboard, you think? <laughs> well, not quite that bad. But, uh, I mean, the, the technology is useful, though, isn't it? Because there was a, a police force in the States who decided that they would come up with the idea of... Uh, a similar system for police dogs because a major problem is in a disaster area police dogs get certain distances from their handlers and they can't hear if there's a very loud environment what their handler is saying to the, or whistling to the dog so what they did was to build these systems that could clamp on the back of a dog's head literally just off of his collar and, and it would re-radiate the sound of the, the handler's instructions into the dog's skull so it would then go through the bone into the, into the cochlea and the dog could hear what the handler wanted to do mm. uh, but in a noisy environment miles away Absolutely, that's a good idea. That would freak me out if I was a dog. Mm. Um, I mean, talking about dogs and bats, why do animals hear such different ranges of sound? Are there animals that compare to humans? And, and what are the super low and super high hearers of the animal world? Well, let's go for super low. Um, those are uh, animals which live down burrows, things like mole rats, golden moles. They are listening for snakes, and um, uh, those animals can literally hear a door open and close. And I don't mean from the creaking of the hinge, I mean from the pressure change in their ears. So their ears are designed for very, very low frequencies. Whales, for example, also can hear very low frequencies, and they, um, well, they caught each other over several thousand miles down the coast of California, and uh, they use, and also down the coast of, uh, well, actually the east coast as well, and the, uh, so, so they can communicate over thousands of miles using low frequencies, which transmit a long way in water. As far as high frequencies are concerned, we're pretty bad. We can hear up to 20 kilohertz when we're young. 
Uh, most mammals can hear at least at 40 or 50 kilohertz, again, because they're trying to pick up uh, communication calls. Mice can hear up to 100 kilohertz, and that's because their babies, for example, can communicate to their, um, to, to, to their mothers uh, without other animals hearing them. So, um, yep, there's... Uh, an enormous range. Uh, the highest frequency animals are uh, whales and some bats. They can hear over 200. They can communicate at over 200 ki- uh, kilohertz. Ian Russell from the University of Sussex. Thanks, Ian. But it's not just bats that use ultrasound. Recently, researchers discovered a population of frogs known as concaveered torrent frogs, which live in China's Huangshan Hot Springs. Now, these animals communicate with each other using ultrasound, and that's to prevent their calls being drowned out by the sound of nearby running water. From the University of Illinois, here's Albert Feng. The discovery centers around really resolving this mystery about this unusual frog in China. So in this paper, we described that actually these frogs are able to produce, but more importantly, actually to communicate with ultrasound. This is sound at very high frequency, sounds that we humans do not hear very well. This is not something that frogs normally are known for doing, is it? No, it isn't at all. And actually, the wonderful thing is that it now makes so much sense that actually in order to hear ultrasound, the eardrum has to be very thin. And additionally, the middle ear ossicles, namely the bones that transmit the sound, have to be of low mass in order to transmit high-frequency sound. And this is exactly what the frogs do. Why do these frogs need ultrasound? What do they do with it? That's a very good point. Actually, ultrasound is a way for them to get around this masking problem with very intense background noise from the running water stream. This is very similar to why bats use ultrasound to do echolocation. How did you actually discover that they were using ultrasound? When we first recorded their communication signals in the year 2000, We were using the audible microphone and audible tape recorder. And at that time, we just noticed that there were energy seemingly at the very high end of the frequency range that we can record reliably. So two years later, our colleagues in Germany brought along a very sophisticated device. And to our surprise, their signals have energy in the range over 128 kilohertz. So when one frog makes this noise, how do the others respond? They follow. So these frogs actually typically form what we call chorus. And so when one frog calls, this induces other frog, male frogs to call also to form this chorus. Chorus sound is believed to be more effective in tracking females. It's a bit like wolves howling, isn't it? So, so it's, it's entirely a mating call? Yes, very much so. And uh, how do the females respond? Have you recorded from females? No, unfortunately, we really haven't encountered too many females at all. Just one, to be truthful. It's so. debatable whether it works, then. <laughs> yeah, we don't know how it actually works. Uh, but we saw a whole bunch of nest eggs from this frog species. So, uh, obviously, they do here. So, how do you know, actually, that the frogs are genuinely responding to the ultrasound if they also make audible sounds? How have you dissected those two effects apart? So we have to utilize uh, the special filtering mechanism, and so we can present either the audible components of the call or the ultrasonic component of the call. And they respond equivalently to each? Yes, indeed. And, and how do you know how that's actually being transmitted to the nervous system? Is it a sensation through bone, or is this being conducted through these modified ears? It's 
clearly a, a conduction through the ear because we performed the experiment to block the entrance to the ear canal. And when we do that, the auditory responses completely vanishes. And is this unique amongst frogs? This, as far as we can tell, is unique. The earless frog or the concave ear frog are very rare. So what are you actually looking at now? Where will you take the research next? Oh, we really would like to find out what the females hear and how do they respond to each of these components. Incredible. That was Albert Feng from the University of Illinois, who's found that China's concave ear torrent frogs have evolved to use ultrasound in order to make themselves heard over the sounds of nearby running water. And he published that work recently in the journal Nature. And you can hear more items like that on the Nature podcast, which is available from nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. Lorraine's in Papworth. Hello, Lorraine. Oh, hello. Thanks for joining us. What would you like to talk about? Yes, um, well, I just have a, a quick question. Um, I, I have very sensitive hearing, and I don't like sudden loud noises or repetitive sounds. Um, um, when I was a kid, I, I, I used to be very upset by ticking clocks, and even when the whole, all the clocks in the house were switched off, I could hear nothing but this tick-tock in my head, and it would just drive me nuts. Well, luckily I grew out of that, but I'm also sensitive to um, sunlight and bright lights. I'm wondering if there's any medical condition or are the two sort of related in any way? So, Ian, is there a, such a thing as someone who has more sensitive hearing than the next person? Yes, there, there, uh, it's called hyperacusis, and um, actually I'm quite interested in that, um, uh, but I don't know the basis for it. I don't know if it's a central basis or a peripheral basis. It will be fairly straightforward to check that out. Let um, me just ask Bob, do, do you know of any, any cases? Um, no, I mean, I know, I know there's, there are some disorders which people get as children which are much more serious than, than your caller's talking about. Um, and I guess the other interesting question is really whether people who are sensitive to um, you know, some types of sound which they find aversive are more likely than others to find uh, visual stimuli aversive as well. But, but like Ian, it's something which I'm so interested in, but I've never really looked into. Lorraine, do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Yes, please. Here we go. When we take a deep breath, there are more molecules of gas in our lungs than there are stars in the known universe. Science fact or science fiction? Um, probably fact. Absolutely right. There's a gobsmacking 50 million, million molecules uh, in the lungs of every person on Earth. When you breathe them out, they all get mixed up in the air around you. So every time we breathe, we're all taking in a few molecules that are being breathed by everyone else, from Marilyn Monroe to Julius Caesar. (laughs) One out of one so far. Australia's most amazing mammal, the duck-billed platypus, actually lays eggs, Lorraine. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Um... Absolutely right, two out of two. The platypus is a monotreme, and together with its spiny relative, the echidna, they both lay eggs. Right. Thank you very much, Lorraine. Great having you on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat, and we're joined now from the University of Salford, whoopee cushion man Trevor Cox. Hi, Trevor. Hi there. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's get that out of the way to start with. I mean, why have you made the world's biggest whoopee cushion? Well, a couple of weeks back, I presented a science show at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, over the two shows, we presented to 5,000 kids a piece of science to try and make them interested in uh, acoustics in general and science and broader. And uh, the whole thing was called Beautiful Music, Horrible Sounds. And um, a whoopee cushion actually behaves rather like a musical instrument, so it's an excuse to make a giant whoopee cushion. Uh, when you say it plays like a musical instrument, you have to explain that a little bit more. It doesn't sound musical in the sort of Beethoven-type definition. 
Uh, no, it, it probably doesn't. But the mouthpieces of wind instruments, such as trumpets and, well, your vocal cords, actually all behave in, using the same science as, as a whoopee cushion, which is the Bernoulli effect. So um, we were talking about the Bernoulli effect with the, with the kids, and we needed something big and impressive, because this show was at the Royal Albert Hall, so every prop had to be massive. So we built the biggest whoopee cushion in the world. Now, Trevor, you, your research is about the science of acoustics, and uh, you talk about big halls and things. So tell us a little bit about how big halls uh, can be built better to render sound, and also what happens when you play sounds in certain environments. Well, if you think about playing sound outside, it, the sound is rather dry. You might have been to a classical concert where you have your picnic and have the fireworks going off, and you get a rather dry sound because all you get is what's coming basically from the orchestra. And then when you go indoors, what you get is all the reflections from the, uh, the walls and the ceiling and the floor. And that enriches the sound. It gives you a much, more, uh, a much richer experience. And it, most, I suppose the most obvious effect is some reverberance, the sort of thing you can hear in cathedrals as the sound echoes around. Now, you were kind enough to send me, actually, a bit of sample of that, so I can try and play you. Uh, you, you talk, us, talk us what we're expecting to hear, first of all, from this one with the reverberation on it. Well, this is, um, this is actually played in a hall, and it's a bit of Tchaikovsky's fourth, and you should hear quite a rich sound, as you would normally expect from a concert. OK, let's go for it. Sounds good. OK, and the other piece you've got is actually played outside the hall. You can imagine it being played outside on a snowy day. There's no reflections at all. It was actually done in a special chamber called an anechoic chamber. And you'll notice it's very, very dry. This is the sort of sound you get from outdoor concerts. Sounds totally different, doesn't it? I mean, I, I suppose it goes without saying that the, the environment makes the concert, I suppose, doesn't it? Well, it's part of it. I mean, of course, the musicians are probably a most important part, and there's other things like being able to get to the seat without getting wet as you walk from the car park is all very important, and the seat's comfortable. <laughs> my, um, my sister used to be a tour guide at the Albert Hall, and um, now they have all those little mushrooms in the ceiling, don't they? And she said that they were put in because the echo was so incredible that um, a review of a concert in the Albert Hall when it was first built said, this represents the best value for money, as you can hear two concerts, one three seconds after the other. <laughs> what, what do those kind of mushrooms and baffles do? Well, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Albert Hall, what it is, it's got a great big dome on the ceiling. And this focus sound, um, a bit like a concave mirror you might use for shaving. And uh, so what you get is you get really strong reflections off these domes into certain places in the audience. So... And, it, and it's so big, the delays are so long, you literally hear multiple sounds. You, hear, you can hear the trumpets more than once, you can hear people talking more than once. And uh, the idea of the mushrooms, they hang in down below the dome, so you can't really see the dome when you're in Albert Hall very well. And they just stop the sound getting into the dome so it, and shorten the reflection path, so it reduced the echo problem. Um, we've also had a question in here from Nick in Arizona, and he says, um, is it true that sound travels farther in cold weather rather than in warm weather, and how does this work? Is well, this, the speed of sound does depend on temperature, and it is slower at, uh, at colder temperatures. So it would sound different then? Yeah, it does. I mean, deep down, uh, sound is the vibration of molecules that we heard earlier on tonight, and uh, if you've got a lower temperature, those molecules are presumably just vibrating a bit slower. Trevor, I've got a question here which has been sent in by uh, Nat Bletter, who sent it on email, and he says, why is it that when you're in a car going by a bunch of other parked cars all in a long row, you hear a swoosh for each car as you pass? Is it the gap in between the car filled with air that interacts with the turbulence made by the moving car that makes you hear this? 
Um, my best guess would be that's quite a good guess. I, I have actually no idea would be the honest answer, but it, it will be some sort of turbulence effect. And we're familiar with turbulence making noise. I mean, that's how things like recorders work. So, but you also get that whooshing sound from cars as you go past, or if you stand on a platform where there's a high-speed train going past, you can hear that whooshing sound, which is the effect of air movement. Now, if you go to the station, and uh, I mean, this stands out in my memory because when I try to understand the announcements being made at a train station, it's almost impossible. Why are stations so bad for things like echoes? Well, a lot of the big, famous stations, uh, Paddington and things like that, are, are just very, very vast spaces. And so you've got these reflections off the, off the ceilings and the walls take a long time to reach you. And uh, what, what literally happens is your ear decodes them as separate sound sources. I mean, if these reflections arrive early enough, your ear will just interpret them as all being from the same sound. I mean, that's the reason when we're in a normal room, we don't get confused by all this sound echoing around us. We kind of feel it's all coming from one source. But as soon as the sounds are delayed because the room's too large, we then start hearing multiple sources. And once you get multiple sources, you know, you're getting words running into each other. It's very difficult to hear announcements. Uh, one of the other things that you made headlines for a few years ago, Trevor, was actually the, this, where this urban legend came from. I don't know, that ducks, e ducks quacks don't echo, but you proved that they do, didn't you? Yeah, I did actually try and find the source of this, uh, this myth because it was, it was been bugging me. But I, I haven't found out. If anyone listening knows, I'd love to know where it comes from. But, um, yes, we, for some reason, we get these phrases that people recount as though they're science fact, even though they're wrong. And the phrase was, a duck's quack doesn't echo, and no one knows the reason why. And we got contacted by several different media organisations saying, is this true or isn't it? So we thought we ought to do something to dispel this myth. Because, I mean, any sound echoes. It just may be in the case of a duck, it's rather difficult to hear. And you, and you actually proved that. What was her name, the duck that, that featured? The duck who featured originally was Daisy, but unfortunately poor old Daisy's been eaten by a fox now. <laughs> so, uh, her echo certainly doesn't crack anymore, does it, no, <laughs> so to speak? No, we refilmed it for, for, for a channel and we had to film it with daughter of Daisy, who was uh, very um, temperamental and rather a vicious duck, I can tell you for free. That's Trevor Cox from the University of Salford. Thank you very much, Trevor, for filling us in on that. It has been The Naked Scientist with Chris and Kat, and thank you very much for everyone at home for taking part in joining us. But a very big thank you to Bob Carline from the MRC Brain Sciences and Cognition Unit here in Cambridge, also to Ian Russell from the University of Sussex and uh, Trevor Cox, who you heard there from the University of Salford. Now, next time we'll be asking, how low can you go as we explore the science of the very cold and superconductivity? So join us to find out how, amongst other things, superconductors can show us individual nerve cells in action in the brain and the flow of electricity through the heart of an unborn baby. If you have any questions for us about superconductors, do please send them along in time for Sunday to chris at nakedscientist.com. Meanwhile, if books and reading about science are more your bag, then please consider buying a copy of my new book, which is called Naked Science. It's very much in the same flavour as the podcast, and you can find out how to get hold of it from our website, nakedscientist.com. Ovines, incidentally, are sheep, and they get their name from the Latin word for sheep, which is ovis. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.